You're tuned to 103.7 WPVM. Of all the feelings we experience in the pantheon of our emotions, nostalgia is surely the most painful to endure, especially the first time. The first time you hear a song from a decade ago, or remember that kiss with that girl on that beach, you feel the sting. You'll never kiss her again. You'll probably never be on that beach again. And you just wish you could feel the exact way you felt then. Naivete, lust, simple ignorance of how precious it all was. The realization that it will never feel that crisp, vibrant, and real again. Because from now on, it's no longer just an experience. It's merely a memory, far off and faint, drifting rapidly into the distance. It's the seed of regret. It's a photo fading from the sun. And every day, it fades a little more. It's 2004, and I'm stepping off the tarmac on a tiny Honduran island called Guanaja. It's beautiful. The crippled mountains shrink back from a blindingly bright blue sky. The sparkling ocean ripples just yards away. Clear blue water clear blue sky. The air is ripe with foreign smells, salt water, sewage, cigarette smoke, smoke from a wood fire. We've come back to help our friend Alan prepare to distribute care packages to his neighbors. It's the third of my trips to this hurricane-ravaged island, and I do not yet realize that it will be my last. I do not realize that as I sit on the street corner, and pull an empanada out of the brown paper bag, and it will be the last time I taste what has become one of my favorite meals. The crispness of the dough, the leanness of the island beef, chicken, and other mystery meats in a steamy, bready pocket. Also brief, and also perfect, sitting there on the street corner. I remember the first time I ate them. At the construction site in the town of Mitch, named for the hurricane that destroyed it. My hands had been covered in dirt and debris, and my socks were wet from that nail that punctured my shoe. A very warm woman with a big toothless smile approached us with a large plastic bag bulging with piping hot empanadas, feeding the strangers who had volunteered to rebuild her home. So now sitting in Celia's kitchen in Asheville, or Anna's empanadas in Raleigh, I feel as though I'm missing something. Sure, these empanadas are basically the same thing. But something is severely amiss. And it's not the pastry. It's not the fact that the beef is fattier than the Honduran beef. It's not the fact that it's jasmine rice. It's that I don't hear the pack of stray dogs barking outside. Or the kids playing soccer. Or the thumping soca beats from the bar up the street. It's the fact that Alan is not telling me some crazy story about moving sunken boats in the harbor using only an air pump and empty oil drums. It's that I don't have mud on my hands and I cannot sit in the shade of some foreign tree and throw scraps to the neighbor's goat. Instead, I hear modern music. I can smell the sterile cleaning products emanating from this particle board table. My hair waves in the air condition, not the salt air. And suddenly, it's just not right. 
it. The other day I was in my kitchen trying to piece together a meal of whatever was left floating around in the fridge. I'd just thrown some chicken thighs in the pans, lightly salted and peppered, and they started to sizzle. I caught a whiff of the most familiar and comforting smell, and when I closed my eyes and inhaled, I could picture my late grandmother's home. I could see the half wall that divided the living room and kitchen. I could see the long leaf table and the eight imperial chairs that surrounded it. I could picture the smoke billowing from her oven as she had yet again forgotten about the bread and it was now in flames. But most of all, I could picture her, blind, still standing in front of the stove, stirring, sipping the broth from the chicken and dumplings. I could still feel the dogs jumping at our legs while we picked at the summer sausage and cheese she always put on the table next to the record player. The TV murmuring in the background, my uncle asleep in the recliner. I could see my mother curled up on the couch reading a magazine, her head wrapped in a shawl, hiding her scars, her shaved head, her thoughts and fears that drifted through a cancer-ravaged brain. As I stood there salivating, sniffing and remembering, I could almost taste the torn strips of chicken, the soft, supple dumplings, and the gelatinous broth. My grandmother passed years ago from pancreatic cancer. It graciously took her quickly. And while my mother can cook very well, and though she, now cancer-free, still cooks that same recipe for chicken and dumplings, there's a chasm there. And maybe it's just that we're not in that house, or that I'm so far removed from that period of my life, but something tastes different. Perhaps it is that my senses have deadened, or that my tastes have changed with age. Or perhaps my grandmother forgot to tell my mom about some certain ingredient. But I think it's mostly because it is made by different hands and served in a different home. I will never have that meal again, that exact meal. But I can still taste it. We cook these foods. We do our best to duplicate them in our homes. Did she use a dash of paprika there? Was the heat really this high? I don't remember using that much celery in the stock last time. We prepare them in our own kitchens to share with our friends, family, guests, whoever. We have grown. We have learned recipes of our own. But we return to these not out of convenience, but out of conviction, out of memory, both fond and regretful out of the feeling that maybe, just maybe, we can capture those feelings, those comforts, those happier times just one more time. We return to them out of respect. Welcome to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Consumable culture, tastelessly analyzed. Once a month, we aim to bring you stories, music, and conversations about the tastes, sights, and sounds that add depth to our lives. We care less about the trends or the buzz of the day, and more about the currents that run through our cultures. So stay tuned for music, interviews, and stories from the people who make them.
You are tuned to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on 103.7 WPVM. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. You just heard a brand new one from Melody's Echo Chamber called Breathe In, Breathe Out, which is extremely exciting news considering that she is recovering from a pretty serious accident that caused a brain aneurysm and a broken vertebrae. So we didn't expect to see her back on the scene this quick. Before that was the latest release from Manchester's White Horses called Counting Down the Years. White Horses is the brainchild of Dom Thomas, who runs the record label Finders Keepers. And that new album, Empty Words, features a ton of guest appearances, including LaRue, Melanie Payne, and Ellie Jackson. And we open that set with Dives Under the Sun from the 2016 album Is As Is Are. So up next, we have Jessie Shires. Jessie grew up in Craig County, Virginia, where she lived with her mother in a two-room farmhouse with no plumbing and no heat. Weaving her way from Kentucky to New Mexico and finally to Asheville, Jessie worked as a paramedic for seven years, spending the last few years at that time doing critical care transport for Mission Hospital. When the helicopter couldn't get to the person, she was the first responder who found a way. Having left the EMS world behind due to what she calls the laughably low pay in North Carolina, she found her way back into the service industry where she currently bartends at one of my favorite places, Sovereign Remedies. Here she is telling her story titled Roots. Mid-October. In a quiet corner of the Blue Ridge where cell coverage can't reach and afternoons thrum with the insistent rhythms of ruffed grouse and cicadas, my mother's garden furiously produces ahead of winter. The first frost arrives during my visit, and Mom records it on her calendar, as gardeners do. I will return to Asheville with my car's trunk packed, a big bag of potatoes with the rich dirt still on, jewel-toned chard far too big for my crisper drawers, herbs by the bunch, squash for miles, butternut, delicata, red curry stacked like cordwood, and the last of the zucchini and yellow crooknecks offering their final tastes of summer. A rainbow of canned goods nestle alongside salsas and jams and pickles labeled in my mother's precise hand. Many miles later, I evict my cast iron from its cabinet to make way for the winter squashes layover, and the more delicate harvest falls under my knife, going in orderly ranks into soup and skillet. It's a solid, visceral connection to a trip home that's already melding into the long, warm span of fine family memories. I'm playing old cassette tapes and singing along in the wrong key. I clean as I go, and after I rinse and wring the dish rag, I use it to wipe the water from my hands before hanging it in its place. That simple action, cradling and caressing first one hand and then the other with the damp cloth, it's a throwaway gesture that no one else would likely even notice. And it's also the one thing that most vividly and immediately conjures my mother's presence in my kitchen. I've seen her do it thousands of times, and that slight, specific movement roots this chore in the deep, comforting loam of a childhood spent largely in kitchen and garden. My most potent food memories are like this, rememberings of process, not plated dishes, of harvest and its transformation under capable hands. Decades ago, late summer meant shifts turning the crank on the old squeeze strainer, generating a ruby cascade of tomato pulp destined for the pressure canner. The excitement of the job wore off long before the last of the Romas went into the hopper, but that smell, acid, earth, and sweet has never grown old. 
My mother ran the edge of a wooden spoon along the machine's fine mesh screen, scraping dregs of crushed tomato into a neat scarlet stream. We children cranked and cranked and cranked while she swapped full bowls for empty. These days, I chop onions against a cutting board with a freshly honed knife edge and a chef's technique I learned from a YouTube video. My mother always cut onions directly into the pot, holding a crescent moon section in her left hand, passing the blade in increments through the pearly flesh with her right, its edge stopping each time against the pad of her thumb. Like that dishrag caress, taking up a small knife to cut my own half moons over a cook pot smudges lines of time and geography, slipping the contours of another kitchen deftly over mine. It's time travel without the circuit boards, more reliable than a DeLorean, set off by the most subtle moments. Her kitchen and mine are rife with such prompts. Look inside the bag of self-rising flour in my mother's pantry and you'll find a relic, a tin can, printed with an old applesauce brand, its rosy-cheeked fruit only a little faded. This same can has incised biscuit dough into ranks of perfect circles for more than four decades, and it is as essential to the recipe as any other ingredient. The first time I made biscuits in my own kitchen, then 1,600 miles and two time zones away from hers, I rolled out the dough and felt utterly lost for want of that very particular implement. I used the rim of a glass and transferred the soft circles to a sheet pan with careful floured hands. I knew by the way the dough felt under my fingers that they were right, but without that can they were still never quite the same. Other cooks in my life have had their idiosyncrasies, but it's my mother's habits I feel overlaid onto mine as I move through the steps of meal prep. The glow around my early memories of home is centered on meals, to be sure, holiday dishes and routine fare both equally fond, but it's the doing of it all, and the tools of that doing, that grounds me. Recreating something as specific as one meal is impossible. The particular people, the mood of the day simply can't be replicated. But the summoning of a more general memory of the care and warmth of those long ago kitchen sessions, that comes easily. We're never working alone in our own kitchens. There will always be relics, heirloom knives or hand-me-down pots, and ghosts in our technique. Whether or not we clean as we go, even our choice of sing-along music. Every successive kitchen, in house or apartment, has shaped the way I work. The oven that's always 25 degrees off, these spaces too cramped to roll out a pie crust, those cabinets too small to keep the largest saucepan close at hand. Like all renters, I don't get to set all the rules in my kitchen. I do what I can with what I've got and learn new ways to adapt to each cranky stove, every confounding layout, all of those laughably small counters. But underneath them all is the one thing I can conjure, like a wizard's spell, with just a simple motion of my hand. The comfort of those earliest family meals, everything that makes this room home.
This is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour on WPVM 103.7. And that was Hercules and the Love Affair with the single from their record of the same name, Omnion. Sharon Van Etten on the mic for that one. I was really excited to see these two come together on this record. I first ran across Hercules and the Love Affair when they worked with Anthony and the Johnsons back in 2008, initially signed by the and broken by DFA Records. It's really no wonder that it was DFA's Tim Goldsworthy that found them. After all, he founded Go Beat. You may know that label from Massive Attack and Portishead. He was also a founder of the band Uncle in conjunction with DJ Shadow and opened DFA Records with James Murphy of LCD Sound System. So it's kind of like drawing a line between, you know, some really awesome artists. Before that was one of my other favorite tunes from 2017, David Bazan's Care. Always reliable for some sharp wit, cutting turns of phrase, and songs that go way, way deeper than surface-level indie rock. If he's not on your radar, I, I hope he is now. And that last tune was Samfa with No One Knows Me, like the piano. Um, just a killer album and really good tune from him. I feel like the first half of that record is kind of kind of perfect. Um, and that, that tune couldn't fit more with Jesse's story, I think. So I guess we should talk about who we are and uh, what we're doing here with mm-hmm. Dirty Spoon. Um <laughs> So, John, why don't you uh, tell the listeners about how Dirty Spoon first came to be? Yeah, um, it started out as kind of a blog that was just where I would put stuff that I needed to expand from what we'd published on Mountain Express. And uh, I would just publish interviews and extended conversations on there. But then it kind of turned into a place to kind of rant and do essays. And that's when I kind of brought you on board to kind of help edit stuff and uh Catherine's <laughs> worked with a bunch of notable publications and and printed in a lot of places like New York Times and McSweeney's and I was like who better to bring on board um so it kind of went from there yeah and when I came on board you had this vision for bringing in other writers and we were looking around at this food blog and and you said I want to bring in other writers I want to bring in other stories from the people who make the food and people who are serving the food and the people that we come into contact with every day, but you know, we might not know their stories. Yeah. I feel like everybody in these industries have, has a story Mm -hmm. and it's, it's really important to get that out there and imprint and give them the chance to, you know, see creative expression beyond just the kitchen or the bar. And, uh, and it's just a really fun opportunity to do that. <laughs> and so now we've had the chance to expand that even further. And we really want to kind of focus on beyond just the kitchen and just food to all kinds of creative craft and and industries where people are actually making things that we consume visually, uh, auditorily, edibly, yeah. all those things. <laughs> all of those things. Speaking of those things... Um, I hear you've been watching TV. I have. A lot lately. (laughs) (laughs) And you want to tell us about some some cooking shows? I do, indeed. So, here you go. Without further ado, Miss Catherine Campbell and her uh, remote cravings. Yay, cooking shows. Okay. 
the first cooking show I ever saw was by pure accident. I noticed it not through the ways we normally discover cooking shows, at the touch of a remote or through a friend's recommendation, but I saw my first cooking show on a screen within a screen. At the age of 10, while watching the 80s classic The Goonies, I came to the scene where one of the young heroes, Chunk, is captured by a villainous family and tied up in a basement with the family's well-meaning and innocent brother, Sloth. Chunk watches as Sloth is fixated on the television in front of him, oblivious to this new stranger in the basement. That's because Sloth is watching a woman frost a chocolate cake. Chocolate, he says with longing. The woman on the television screen presents the cake, its layers of frosting perfectly shaped. Of course, the rest of the movie was great and magical, and as a 10-year-old, I loved it, but that moment stuck with me. I couldn't help but wonder, did a show like that really exist? A show where a woman could teach me how to make chocolate cake? At the time, our family didn't have cable television. So this simple question sent me on a journey to figure out who the mystery woman was in the background. And this journey would take me decades to uncover the answer. It was Julia Child. And unfortunately, at that time in 2005, she had passed away. My second brush for cooking shows was when I stumbled upon an episode of Iron Chef. The title caught my eye. The premise drew me in. Cooks competing in a time limit? Using one ingredient that had to appear in every meal course? That was it. I strapped in for the ride. As I watched the chefs competing for the title, I tried to follow them, but had a little difficulty. They moved so swiftly among utensils and burners, momentarily pressing the button of the blender or quickly sampling a sauce. That was the moment I realized that what I loved most about a show like this was the exact same reason why I love a novel. It's complete fantasy, at least for me. I'm your typical white American woman. I have privilege and access to certain foods, kitchen space, tools, and tech to help me cook. I own an ice cream maker in the color of red. I own two crock pots. I've been considering one of those Instapots too. Who knows? But the one thing I lack is time. Time to prep. Time to chop. Time to watch a casserole begin to bubble in the oven. Time to grow everything I need. Time to talk and laugh with guests as they wait and watch the pans of food simmering behind me. Time to sit down at a table and savor every bite. Because that would also require time to shop, time to visit multiple stores, time to make the money to buy the ingredients, time to wash the dishes, and time to wipe down the counters. Isn't it easier to watch someone else cook for 60 minutes? Through my screen, I can live vicariously, almost tasting the dishes from Vietnam, Austria, New Zealand, and I'm okay with that. I'd rather watch a show where a flawlessly frosted cake appears after a few minutes than a show that mimics my own reality, where dinner is often raisin bran and milk. After discovering Iron Chef, the landscape broke open. It was like the rest of the world existed in this one place, 
and I had been given the key to join them. Suddenly, everywhere I turned, there was a new cooking show for me. Road trips to diners, brave souls trying head cheese or matsunabe, famous Michelin-starred chefs smiling while presenting wasabi sorbet to an intimate group of elite jet-setters. This begged the question, what happened between the woman frosting the cake on the screen then and today where we have dozens upon dozens of cooking shows? What is it exactly about making food that we find so compelling we keep our eyes glued to a screen? I mean, it's food, something that disappears into our mouths, never to return with the same shape, the same color, the same taste. What is it about crafting, chopping, sauteing, baking, plating that is so alluring on our television screens? I assumed the history of cooking shows began with Julia Child. After all, she is considered to be the godmother of food TV, the way Patti Smith is the godmother of punk. With Julia's serene, non-fussy way of moving about the kitchen, she broke the mold of glittery, shiny, sparkling kitchen counter life that was so prevalent in mid-century advertising. We loved and still love Julia Child because she was, well, human. With the camera still rolling, she dropped spoons, spilled ingredients, fumbled when moving a pot from a burner or pouring liquid in a dish. But she wore pearls the whole time. Julia showed women they could be themselves, make mistakes, yet still contain an innate sense of grace. Because that's what food and food preparation is, from a simple loaf of bread and cheese to a complicated multi-course meal it's an experience of grace, a salvation. But she wasn't the first TV host. Cooking shows technically began on the radio and transitioned to television. A radio listener, if they were in France, for example, could listen to Dr. Edouard de Pamian's weekly program on Radio Paris. The food scientist and author of a dozen cookbooks would take to the airwaves, telling stories of his kitchen experiences and providing recipes that were accessible to the home cook. Meanwhile, over in the U.S., a fictional Betty Crocker, voiced at one time or another by 13 different actresses, hosted the first American food broadcast. The Betty Crocker Cooking School of the Air, yes, that was the full name, started in Minnesota on one little radio station and went national in 1926. Housewives and families would tune in while Betty answered questions and gave cooking tips. The Betty Crocker Show wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan trend, like many of the types of food shows we see today on, say, The Food Network or Bravo. The radio broadcast lasted for 25 years, into the late 1940s, when television became popular and began to take over. This became the time of the in-studio cooking show, where hosts would demonstrate recipes and preparation instructions. The goal during the mid-century was to bolster the everyday housewife's confidence in her own cooking. With a little effort, she could replicate the recipe on the screen down to the last sprig of parsley and feed her happy family. This was the era of instruction, where recipes were pretty paint by numbers. Then morning variety shows adopted segments and the rise of the cooking star began to emerge. 
Soon, television networks realized the draw of cooking shows, so they created entire channels dedicated to a lifestyle centered around food. And competitions began. Americans spend thousands of hours each week watching cooking shows. In 2010, a Harris report revealed that eight in every 10 adults watch food shows. At the time, TV personality Rachel Ray dominated the networks with her reliable 30-minute meals. And today, thanks to the streaming services such as Netflix and web series on YouTube, we binge-watch dramas such as The Great British Baking Show and Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, clocking an average of two to three episodes at a time. We have friends over for viewing parties. We crowd together on the couch for Worst Cooks in America or Chopped. Our choices of shows range from Family Values Middle America on the Pioneer Woman to The Exotic in A Cook Abroad. Women, Southerners, and reality competitions are the major themes running throughout our food TV obsession. Even Marvel, yes, the comic book company, recently launched a cooking show. Marvel Eats the Universe is a show featuring pop culture influencers and recipes inspired by comic book history. In episode one, for example, they make Phoenix hot chicken and egg, based on Jean Grey and her stepson Cable. I cross my fingers for maybe some Daredevil Hell's Kitchen pizza, because I'm simple at heart. So, which cooking stories get told, and which ones don't? Anyone can publish a cookbook, but a cooking show requires a personality, charisma, someone you love to watch or love to hate. Or better yet, say the producers, put an odd couple together, add ingredients, and voila, you have a show for which hundreds of thousands of people will tune in, at least for one season. It's not about the chemistry of the food, but the chemistry of the people on screen. It's no longer about knowledge, but the delivery of that knowledge. We probably won't see my favorite local baker on TV anytime soon. Would we today as a people still be satisfied, entertained, enthralled to watch Julia Child drop a spoon or take a minute to put on oven mitts? Or would we turn to our smartphones and browse Instagram? When I watch food shows, I'm hungry. Not for the food necessarily on the screen, but the time I'll never have to discover those tastes in real life. I tell myself I feel full after an episode, that I'm satisfied to know that that particular dish exists in the world, that some other man, woman, or child is enjoying it to the last bite. But I know it's a lie. For other viewers, maybe it's a different craving. They're drawn to a specific ingredient, or a cook, or a unique environment in which the host still manages to turn food from a science into a work of art. I don't know where cooking shows will go next. Virtual reality looms on the horizon, and some brands are currently working behind the scenes, trying to figure out a way to physically deliver food to your door at the same time it appears on screen. In the meantime, I'll be here on the couch with my bowl of cereal, pressing the remote, flipping endlessly through all of my options to observe the next great meal just out of my reach. If I could, I'd be your little spoon and kiss your fingers forevermore. But big spoon, you 
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2018. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The incredible art on that website is by Katrin Doze and Corinne Pease. Music in this episode is by Bent, The Album Leaf, Royksop, The Scatolites, John Bryan, White Horses, Hercules and the Love Affair, Dive, David Bazan, Melody's Echo Chamber, and Mitski. Catherine Campbell is our editor at large, sources our stories, and handles our web production. Jonathan Ammons is our editor in chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. You've been listening to 103.7 WPVM. Tune in next month for more stories, music, and conversations for the people who shape what we consume.